So rather than what I know or think I know, today I want to talk about what I don't know. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. The essence of podcasting, and punditry in particular, is to peddle ostensible truths and confident certainties. Well, look, let me let you into a secret. We don't really know. With luck, a certain degree of self-awareness, and hopefully knowledge built up over the years, our guesses are hopefully better than most, but still, we have to accept the limits of our prognostications. And in that spirit, what I want to do today is to raise some important questions to which I really don't know the answer, but which I think are important to be asking. Alas, they matter. So let's start with the implications of Russia's heating crisis. You know, over the past week in particular, the residents of several Russian regions have faced very, very significant uh, shut-offs of heating. Remember, particularly, so many Russian cities still have centralised heating systems. In other words, you don't have your own little boiler you instead have a radiator that is fed by massive steam plants somewhere else in in the system. So particularly heating and electricity networks have been especially badly hit. And look, while these kind of disruptions of service are fairly common in, in Russia's regions due to the overall decay of the public utility networks, I'll come to that um, in a moment, what didn't help was that the weather was especially bad. You know, we had temperatures going down to minus 20s or even beyond, especially in the Moscow region. Now, there's also inevitably been you know, a high level of reporting of these cases. It's not the kind of thing that you can just sort of brush under the carpet when, you know, you have whole neighbourhoods suddenly being affected. A classic example was in the town of Padolsk, 30 kilometres south of Moscow. Now there, there was an explosion in the heating main of a armaments production plant, a private one, and this led to heating outages affecting about 150,000 residents. That's about half the population of the town. Now, you cannot just simply sort of sweep that under the carpet, but what's interesting is actually the degree to which, in fact, it has had a lot of coverage. I think there's a degree to which this regime also appreciates that it would be deeply counterproductive to try and pretend otherwise. So what happens? Well, as usual, people appeal to the Tsar. Why can't he fix everything? And likewise, Putin did his usual thing of really trying to avoid any sense of blame at all. He went on television instead to dump the responsibility on other people, the Ministry of Emergency Situations, for example, and in particular, local administrations, governors and mayors and the like, and you know, ordered them to get the heating switch back on. You know, well, gosh, why did no one else think of that? 
Then, as usual, there are also some high-profile acts to show that the Tsar is sort of stepping in. In particular, for example, the weapons plant that I, or ammunition plant that I mentioned in Padolsk, the Klimovsk specialised ammunition plant, well, that was nationalised. Now, to be perfectly honest, this is probably the kind of thing that the regime wanted to do anyway in a time of war to actually have all the ammunition plants under direct state control. But still, the point is that was presented as some kind of punitive act to make sure that the state can ensure that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. And speaking of punitive acts, we again have, again, this is something that I raised in my earlier podcast about the egg crisis, that whenever there is a what really is a administrative and economic challenge, nonetheless, the security forces soon get brought in in the sort of sense that you can arrest your way out of a crisis. So, again, taking the example of Podolsk, we have the deputy mayor and a couple of executives arrested by the investigatory committee in the idea of being able to claim that, oh, it was because of this specific malfeasance of individuals rather than anything more systemic. But as ever, the security forces and coercion are really the state's Swiss army knife. When in doubt, you can always try and sort of turn to them and hope that they'll fix it. And to a large extent, they're just digging in and hoping to be able to wait until it gets warmer. Though, then when it gets warmer, we'll have a whole variety of different types of crises. They tend to be water cutoffs, forest fires and the like. The problem is that although Putin is going to try and make this about individual failures, actually it's about structural problems. Not just in terms of the economy, but just generally the way the regime works. And, and it's not unusual. As I said, we had this to a degree every winter. Dagestan, we've had power outages already happening for months and protests as a result. The problem is this precisely, that in some ways actually come to think of it, it's an interesting parallel with what we saw with the military. That there, there was a lot of investment, but disproportionately teeth rather than tail. In other words, new tanks, new guns, new aircraft, but not enough on the human side of the military, on the logistical backup, all that kind of stuff. The things that are unsexy, the things that don't look so impressive rumbling through Red Square. Well, likewise, if we think about investment within the national economy, and even, frankly, within the infrastructure, we've got the, the fancy high-speed subsound trains, um, we've got a you know a few again sort of really quite well built actually um, toll motorways and the like, but things like utility networks that has for years if not decades faced serious challenge of underinvestment. Last year it was reckoned that about eighty percent of all of Russia's utility networks were in need of repair. There just hasn't been enough money spent, and although last year after a series of protests there was a bit of money sort of found, they sort of felt around behind the back of the sofa cushions and found some money to put into refurbishing some, some particularly uh, badly provisioned utility networks. Even that was both A, inadequate, and B, scheduled on a downward curve. In other words, there was a chunk of money, there was a smaller chunk of money that will be coming this year, and, and so forth. And the thing is, this is not going to change. With one third of your budget already allocated to the war, 
and with the likelihood that you will have to continue to be spending on that kind of level, given all the other demands on, on the public purse, ones which are of more sort of immediate political concern or just simply unavoidable, the thought that there will be significant sustained investment in something like electricity networks, gas grid and so forth. Remember, you know, there are still too many Russian settlements that are not even on the direct gas grid. You know, that's just not going to happen. Especially because, of course, we have a serious problem, as ever, with corruption within the system. This is the irony. So much of the petty and predatory corruption that you would see on the streets has indeed been dealt with. But while that has been dealt with, the embezzlement and industrial scale corruption at the top of the political system is still as serious a problem as ever. And this has, again, time and time again, eaten away dramatically at the funds available for infrastructure. So, I mean, there was, a, for example, a particular case in Tver region, where there are claims that the heads of the local water utilities and indeed the local boiler house misappropriated funds you know, and basically about 84 million rubles, which is about, a, I don't know, a billion dollars, uh, sorry, a million dollars, which is no small amount when we're talking about a local regional budget, in you know, monies that were accrued through heating bills, seems to have gone walkabout. So this is the trouble. It's not just that the money is not being spent, it's that what money is being spent is being embezzled, and not enough is being done about it. And at the same time, you have policies that are just simply not connected. For example, in Moscow region, where there's a particular problem, we're also seeing a continuing construction boom. I have to say a fair amount of this construction is speculative or money laundering, but the point is it's being done. But new houses, new offices, new warehouses are being built with no serious consideration about precisely how they will affect the needs of the region in terms of its power grid, in terms of its sewerage supplies and the like. Again, you know, it's all about the shiny building, not about the massive network of hidden infrastructural capacities which are necessary for that shiny building to, to work and to not end up unbalancing the overall sort of ecosystem. So what this raises to me, given that clearly this is a problem which is not going to go away, if anything it's going to get worse, is what are the limits of the Russian public's patience? Because in many ways it is this kind of issue which really affects your day-to-day -day life. You know, if you are living in an environment in which it's minus 20 degrees outside, whether or not there is heating, whether or not, frankly, you can also cook yourself hot meals, that really matters. So we have heating cuts every winter, we have water shortages and forest fires every summer. And forest fires, that may sound trivial, but when your city is smothered in a pall of smog because of those, it becomes much, much more immediate. When your kids are coughing up black dust, you care. The war is only going to worsen the situation, so how long will the Russians put up with this? And here's the thing, I don't know. There is this, after all, something of an orientalizing myth about the boundless patience of the Russian mujik, the Russian peasant. And it carries with it all kinds of implications of this sort of sullen, unfeeling, bestial mass. In fact, Russians have proven throughout history 
to be ornery, to be willing to stand up and complain and do more than just complain. And, and you know, whether we're talking about medieval Russia, where the institution of the Vietje, this idea of this gathering of all the free male citizens of a, a particular principality, well, in, we often saw cases in which precisely the Vietje became the, 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 the location whereby demands were made upon the prince to act in a certain way or just simply to leave. You know, we do have cases of princes being kicked out of their cities by their own people. It wasn't democracy, it was more like mob rule, but the point is it was there. If we go to the 19th century, I mean, there you have a period with, with very oppressive and largely authoritarian, you know, for most of the century, authoritarian rule. And yet there was an almost constant litany of peasant risings, revolutionary movements, the so-called Red Rooster, which was the sort of term for arson attacks against the households of the local gentry. You know, it was actually a very unruly time. The 1917 revolutions, remember there were two of them, February and October, um, but you know, again, what drove them? It was bread riots, it was dissatisfaction within the military, it was Russians who were willing to say, that's it, we've had enough. Even the orgiastic height of Stalinism, the collectivization campaign, in which essentially peasant holdings were all brought, you know, forcibly nationalized, brought under the control of the state, that was in many ways more like a civil war in that peasants resisted and the state put them down with force but at some points the so-called dizzy with success moment actually the state stepped back so violent so serious was the, the the force that it was facing from the countryside or even think of the collapse of the soviet union the 1980s you know, a period of escalating and catastrophic strikes, particularly culminating in minor strikes that brought with them, again, the prospect of power cuts in, in the height of winter. You know, for all these reasons, you know, we have to acknowledge that actually the myth of the, the, the long-suffering Russian, to a large extent, has been built around experiences in World War I and World War II. And particularly if one looks at World War II, firstly, they were suffering because the alternative was the victory of a regime which you know, genuinely did wish to destroy or enslave the Slavic people. But secondly, it was also at a time of a phenomenally brutal and far-reaching police state, wherein to grumble, to resist, to refuse, was to invite a bullet in the back of the head or a short trip to a penal battalion. So, you know, for all these reasons, Russians will resist. But of course, what tends to require that kind of resistance is some kind of black swan moment, something that will actually challenge all the accepted notions of the status quo. And that's what we're doing. And in some ways, that raises the next question. What and when will the next black swans be? Because we have a regime that, to go back to my usual litany, is strong but brittle. You know, we have to recognise that you know, it has all kinds of capacities to control the situation, whether it's in terms of the economy, whether it's in terms of the masses, whether it's in terms of, frankly, at the moment at least, having the, the initiative in the, the war in Ukraine. There is no obvious resistance to Putin. 
there is still a strongly established and pervasive police state there to protect him. So on, on the one level, we shouldn't anticipate that predictable levels of pressure are likely to bring this regime down at any particular point. But on the other hand, we also have to acknowledge that its capacity to respond to crises, to the unexpected, has been strikingly diminished. And particularly, again, I apologise that this is a point I've sort of hammered on at the past, but if we think of really the three key pillars of Putinism, what made it strong? Firstly, was Putin's personal legitimacy, both with the masses and within the elite. Secondly, it was his capacity to throw money at problems if need be. And thirdly, it was his presumed absolute control of the security apparatus. All three of these are now increasingly in question. Putin's legitimacy within the elite has been shaken, not by, just by the invasion, but also by the Wagner mutiny and the response thereto. And also his legitimacy with the masses. You know, I think there is clearly a degree of Putin fatigue stepping in. It may well be exactly at the moment that there's no one to replace him, but that doesn't mean to say that they're necessarily happy. The capacity to throw money at problems, well, clearly that is increasingly constrained. And likewise, as we saw with the response of the mutiny, it's hard to be sure, but we certainly cannot assume for certain that Putin can count on the loyalty of the security apparatus. Maybe of the people at the top of that system, but the point is, can they actually deliver along and down the chain of command? That's not so certain. So in this case, you know, we have to recognise that, that black swans can and will represent a real challenge. And we have seen the power of black swans before, under Putin. I mean, the Balotnaya protests, I don't think anyone was really anticipating that these protests, in, largely in Moscow, but also in some other major cities, in 2011, 2012, were going to sort of assume the scale they did. And although they were indeed eventually controlled, nonetheless, they had, in my opinion, a cataclysmic effect in terms of pushing the Putin regime onto a full war footing. Because, after all, as far as the Putins and Patrushevs were concerned, this was not a genuine and organic protest of people who were just fed up, fed up with blatant vote rigging, fed up with the idea that the presidency of their nation is some kind of bauble that Putin can present to Medvedev and then claim back in due course. So as far as they were concerned, instead this was clearly Western Gibridnaya Voina, Western hybrid warfare. Putin decided that this is what he had feared. This is when the West start. When you say well, the West, we're primarily talking about the United States and the UK. The West is coming for him, and so in hindsight, I think we can see that really that's when this whole increasingly sort of paranoid defensiveness that really is at the heart of the current crisis really began. Then another black swan: the revolution of dignity in Ukraine, 2013 to 2014. I mean, again, that totally changes Putin's perception, because once again, once again, as far as he's concerned, this is actually the West stealing part of Russia's rightful geopolitical and historical patrimony from it. It leads to Crimea and leads much more directly to the slide to the current war. On a different level, I mean, actually, another black swan would have been in the beginning of 2021, Navalny's return to Russia. And on one level, one could say, well, that was just dealt with without much of a ripple. He was arrested. He was uh, tried in a quote-unquote court of law and then duly sent to prison. 
But nonetheless, I mean, I think in terms of creating a face for the opposition to Putin, a face for the notion of a brave, liberal and indeed optimistic Russia, both at home but also abroad, I think we'll actually find that that really was quite significant. The actual invasion of Ukraine in 20, February 2022 is a kind of black swan in that it was you know, maybe you know, foreshadowed, but again, it wasn't a definite thing and has absolutely transformed not just Russia, but the global situation. And then the 2023 Wagner mutiny. You know, all of these have actually had really sort of strong impacts, not just on the regime, but on the regime's thinking. And there continue to be all kinds of potential future black swans posited. I mean, now we have a, a positive bevy of black swans perched somewhere around the Kremlin, but apparently refusing to fly. And actually, just a little sidebar. What I think is fascinating, when we talk about collective nouns of animals, just how many swans have. And I think, look, swans are, in my opinion, the um, self-important and entitled thugs of the wildfowl world. You know, they, they, they haven't got that kind of raw, jovial bullishness of, of the goose. Instead, they just basically regard themselves as aristocrats. So perhaps no wonder that they have uh, annexed to themselves a whole variety of collective nouns. So yes, you've got a, you know, there's a bevy of swans or a bank of swans. Quite uh, poetically, you can talk about a whiteness of swans, an era of swans. I have no idea where that comes from. Um, a gargle of swans, and if they're flying, they can be described as a wedge of swans. So there you go. I may be dispensing more uncertainties than certainties about Russia today, but at least I've dispensed a bit of wisdom about swans. Anyway, to return, these kind of unexpected, unpredictable, disruptive black swan events, what sort of things have we had posited or predicted? Well, the obvious one, Putin getting ill, Putin dying or whatever. A sudden dramatic Ukrainian breakthrough on the front line, especially if Crimea truly comes into play, let alone falls. At one point, there was the thought of cascading regional debt within the Russian Federation. The idea that one particular region's troubles suddenly become a national crisis by bringing down other ones. Increasingly now, actually, household debt looks like something of a potential time bomb. One of the ways that people are responding to the growing gap between inflation, particularly inflation in food, and their own salaries is by taking on more debt. At some point, that really becomes unsustainable. Beyond that, well, there's always the chance of another Chernobyl nuclear disaster or com comparable sort of national crisis. As I've mentioned, what happens if there's a new explosion of secessionism and insurgency within the North Caucasus? If, say, Kadyrov dies or... I was going to say sort of goes mad, but I think we, we're long past that point. And all of a sudden, Russia is faced with the need to be able to concentrate forces in the North Caucasus to a degree that the National Guard alone is unable to provide. What does Putin do if he's faced with the choice of having troops in Ukraine or troops in the North Caucasus? And on that point, what about the unexpected emergence of some kind of anti-war symbol or charismatic leader or movement? You know, these things can happen very quickly. 
It's worth noting, after all, that these are precisely what the regime's concerns are. And again, that goes back to my point last week about you know, the egg crisis, that actually the real, there is a real fear within the regime, and certainly within the security apparatus, that practical concerns can very, very quickly become something around which national movements can cohere without necessarily having some kind of clear movement or leader or the like. You know, just because a regime is paranoid doesn't mean it doesn't have something to fear. But so what is it? What is likely to be that next black swan event that really shakes the regime to its foundations and could potentially even bring it down, or if it doesn't bring it down, forces it to adopt some, some new approach, whether it's to managing the country or the elite or the war. Again, I don't know. That's the nature of black swans. We know they're there. We can posit which ones might be most likely to flap their way to, across the Kremlin. And we can try and play out what we think the impact of each individual type would be. But when, which, we don't know. So let me just take a break now. That's something I do know about. And then we'll return to actually, again, uncertainties relating to the war in Ukraine. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. Before I move on, just a couple of public service announcements. First of all, welcome to new patrons who have signed up in the past few weeks. I was, uh, I would say talking, I was messaging back and forth with one, and it occurred that this individual didn't realise, so it's worth highlighting. Remember, if you have become a patron, you also have access to the whole back catalogue of particular goodies that were provided to patrons, whether it's uh, 12 Days of Shadowy Christmas or, or other various things. So if you have a moment to spare and you want, go back and, and have a look at what's available to you on the website. Secondly, it's a couple of announcements. If you happen to be in London on the evening of Monday, the 29th of January, I'll be speaking sort of around the themes of my book, Putin's Wars, at the King's College London Russian Institute at 6 p.m. Um, as I understand it, there's still seats available. It's free, but you do actually have to sign up in advance. I will leave a link in the program notes. And further afield, Copenhagen's Historical Days Festival, I will be speaking on, again, Russian criminality from mafia to kleptocracy, on Sunday the 10th of March in the context of that festival at 10am and I will be speaking if people are wondering in English not in Danish. Anyway moving on so I've talked about some domestic issues let me actually now talk about one area of genuine uncertainty I have about the the, the war in Ukraine. At the moment after all, there is you know, some degree of debate and discussion over whether or not it would make sense to go for some kind of a ceasefire. And largely, the idea has been ruled out. 
because, well, it might freeze the conflict or runs that kind of risk, that we can't trust Putin, though, you know, look, fair enough. The point is a ceasefire does not necessarily require trust. It actually just simply requires both sides to stop shooting. And if the other side doesn't sh stop shooting, well, then you don't stop either. You know, this is, after all, we must stress, not a peace negotiation. The idea of a ceasefire is, is simply that. It is a period of a pause in a, in a conflict which may or may not create the space for some kind of negotiations. At the moment, I really can't see how there can be any meaningful discussion. But, the, but again, but I think the point is one of the reasons why people push back against the ceasefire is, again, by saying Putin does not seem to be interested in, in peace. But that's not the point. And also, look, there is this, this view that if there is a, a pause in the war, then Russia will use that pause to rebuild its forces and capacities so that it can come back stronger afterwards. Well, that's perfectly true. But so too would Ukraine. And why I find this a particularly interesting point, and I'll be coming to what the actual question is in a moment, is that there is also, certainly in the West, and I think increasingly in Ukraine as well, a sense that 2024 will have to be a building year for Ukraine. After the, and no one really likes to use the word failure, but let's just simply say the less than stellar accomplishments of the counteroffensive in 2023, you know, it is clear that Ukraine not only is going to have to spend some time rebuilding its forces, metabolizing the new kit that it's getting. I mean, you know, there's meant to be F-16s coming and so forth. Well, you don't just simply sort of plug that in to your existing tactics and so forth. You know, they're going to have to think about precisely how they use such new capabilities they've got. They are going to have to recruit more troops, and this is why it matters that there is this current debate within the Ukrainian parliament about a law which would allow the recruitment of potentially hundreds of thousands of, of, of extra Ukrainians for the front. And you know, it is clear that in terms of training, one of the weaknesses that people like Mike Kaufman and Jack Watling, who are probably the most acute military observers of the scene in, in the West, who really have been you know, going and doing their research on the ground, have highlighted is that Ukrainian forces were just simply unable, and this is not a criticism of them so much as just simply that they hadn't yet built up their capacity, but unable to be able to mount combined arms operations of a suitable scale. You, know, you can't just operate on the level of a few platoons or maybe a company if you're actually going to not just make some kind of significant breakthrough of heavily contested defensive lines, but then be able to exploit them properly you need to be able to work at more like a brigade level. And that's something that the Ukrainians just have not demonstrated that they're able to do. So again, that's something that, that 2024 can be devoted to. So there is this idea that although it's a very depressing thought to more or less say, look, we're in this for, in effect, at least another couple of years with everything that involves. And there are inevitably qualms about just how much blood Ukraine can afford to shed, as well as, of course, the, the concerns about what politics, and politics in this context usually is just a euphemism for American politics, might mean for the long-term viability of Western aid. But you know, given all of those, nonetheless, it does seem to be the case that really 
we'll have to accept that 2024 you know is likely to see relatively constrained even if very hard fought offensives and counteroffensives but that neither side is probably going to have the kind of capacity to be able to launch massive and sustained operations so one could argue that ukraine would actually benefit from the distraction, shall we say, of either having to mount or resist significant military operations. And in that context, a ceasefire does not need to be open-ended. It doesn't have to be that we will basically stop fighting until you bat naughty Russians decide to break it. It could be framed even just as a, we are going to give Russia six months, 12 months, in order to come to its senses, in order to actually be able to think about, you know, Think about the naughty things it's done. Get on the naughty step. Um, you know, and after that, all bets are off. So, you know, it can actually have built within it some kind of uh, limitations on, on timing so that it is not, in effect, acknowledging that the current front lines are the de facto national borders. So the question is, yes, I can see the problems with the ceasefire as such. But if we're talking about 2025 as a building year for Ukraine, why not also go for a ceasefire to actually allow that building year to be as sustained and focused as possible? Well, the answer to my own question, because that wasn't the real question, but you know, the answer to that particular question is, well, of course, there is a possibility that Russia may benefit more than Ukraine by that. You know, there's no point allowing yourself to build up if, in fact, your, your, your enemies will benefit all the more greatly. Whether it's in terms of digging more trenches and laying more mines, whether it's in terms of building up the sort of stocks. And this, again, this is a real problem here. At the moment, Russia is outproducing Ukraine and its Western allies. In a year's time, that situation is likely to be different. But at present, if each side gets a month to stockpile ammunition, that clearly does benefit the Russians more. There is a risk that, and it's a very sad thought, that the lack of fighting on the ground will actually make it easier for the West to forget Ukraine. It is deeply depressing to think that maybe Ukraine needs to be bleeding to be relevant. But nonetheless, you know, one, one, one could see that. You know, one of the problems with modern democratic Western societies is that they are attention deficit disorder societies consumed by the crisis of the moment. Still no fighting on the Ukraine border is not going to be front page news, especially when you have Gaza or Yemen or whoever knows what the next flashpoint will be to distract. So again, it might be that actually politically speaking, a ceasefire will be terribly dangerous. There's also politics at home. Could this actually undermine Ukraine's will to resist to some degree? I mean, again, at the moment, this has been one of the sort of striking aspects of this war has been the unity and the determination still largely shown by Ukrainians. But we can't pretend that, especially behind the scenes, there isn't a degree of dismay at how long this war is lasting and how long it's likely to last. A sense that the, the government maybe is not quite as on top of things as they would have hoped. And in that context... A ceasefire might look to some like a kind of coded surrender and to others an opportunity precisely to be able to avoid going back to the war and to others, frankly, a betrayal.
So again, it's not necessarily that it will break the Ukrainian will, but it might contribute to a fragmentation of Ukrainian perspectives, which again is almost as, as politically dangerous. And, and finally, yeah, the ceasefire could indeed actually end up becoming de facto a way of freezing the conflict so that you know we never have a real peace but on the other hand nor too does the war restart and lo and behold Putin can sit back with 22% of Ukraine in his grasp. Now you know of course we, we have to recognize that there are some who argue that that actually might be the best road to a kind of peace. Emma Ashford and Kelly Greco have quite a cogent piece, I have to say, in foreign affairs called How Ukraine Can Win Through Defence, A New Strategy Can Protect Kiev and Stop Moscow from Winning, that essentially argues the case precisely that accepting a degree of territorial loss is really the best way to allowing Ukraine the kind of peace it needs to, to build itself as a modern democratic liber liberal state. Of course, you can argue against it from the fact that it's, well, hey, not fair to Ukraine and does seem to re reward aggression. And I'm going to come back to this in, in a future episode. But the point is that it's striking the degree to which actually there is clearly on the Western side a growing body of opinion, even if this is not opinion which is yet policy of any country, but a growing body of people saying, look, actually, realistically, this vision for of a war that will lead to Ukra Ukraine pushing Russian soldiers out of every square centimetre of, of its country is just not viable. Therefore, let's think more realistically. And I don't know. And I think this, this is the real issue. That although while at present I can't help but feel that the combination of a ceasefire and an accelerated Ukrainian rearmament through 2024 may make a great deal of sense, it is clear that it would be a gamble. And in circumstances where it's a gamble, the temptation is to basically not gamble and, and do, do what your existing policy has been. Is this a gamble worth taking? If Putin is genuinely, genuinely, as we've been told from various particularly Western newspapers, but not entirely just from that, if, if Putin is putting out feelers, about the potential for a ceasefire, is it worth basically taking him at face value? Not out of any sense of naivety, but because actually from a purely pragmatic point of view, it might be in Ukraine's interests. Test his capacity to actually follow through, in some ways call his bluff, and see if a ceasefire to 2024 can be the springboard to some kind of military and or political victory for Ukraine in 2025. But again, I don't know. This is, after all, the nature of this current conflict. Even more so than attempts to try and guess what's going to happen next in, in Russia itself. This conflict has demonstrated very much, I would suggest, the limits of prediction. Because remember, you know, yes, I mean, look, and I have to hold up my hands, as I said in the past, until about a week before the actual invasion, I thought the odds were against. I thought we had no more than a 40% chance that Putin was going to invade. In that respect, hey, I was wrong. But let's also not forget that the reason I was wrong was I just thought it seemed so senseless because I was certain that Ukraine was going to be a much tougher nut to crack 
than some people might suspect. And at the same time, those people who got it right about the fact that Russia would invade, on the whole, were people who were also equally certain that Russia would be able to conquer Ukraine to a large degree within a relatively short space of time. So in this respect, you know, basically, we, we all just got to choose which way we were wrong. And since then, you know, we, we have seen all kinds of, how can I put this, incidents in which perhaps prediction was really driven by hope rather than anything else. Whether it was about the Ukrainians' capacity to be able to launch uh, a counterattack which would break through the Russian defensive lines and totally change the military and thus political situation on the ground, or whether it was actually the notion that sanctions could break the Russian economy and certainly prevent it from gearing up to be able to actually fight and sustain a serious long-term industrial conflict. You know, all, all of these cases we, we have seen limited. And I think the reason why it's worth stressing this, uh, beyond just the general point about sort of <laughs> the humility of the analytic class, is precisely that it does shape policy. And it does highlight the degree to which, in a way, I would suggest that there are two particular schools of thought which apply in Ukraine war case, but also much more generally in terms of policy. And we could call them the heroic versus the actuarial. You know, the heroic school of policy precisely says we take risks because we basically are gambling on the fact that we have some kind of intangible, mystical X factor on our side. And maybe it's the morale and the enthusiasm and the elan of our fighting men. Or maybe it's precisely because we are aware that we are fighting for the, the, the survival of our nation. But, you know, but somehow or other, it means that we can surmount the predictable. And sometimes that absolutely works. But it doesn't always. And then there's the actuarial approach to policy, which is to say, well, you know, where does crunching past experience, current data and so forth suggest we ought to be policy-wise? If in similar circumstances, waiting for the particular aspects of our military and the like, it looks as if 55% of the time moving to the offence makes sense and 45% of the time sticking to the defence, then we charge. But conversely, if it's 45 to 55, then we stay hunkered in our trenches on the defensive. You basically try and play the numbers. And again, sometimes it works, though it very much plays in favour of the big battalions, whoever has the most resources. But it does lead to predictability, because after all, the other side can, can play your numbers as well. And it also has a tendency to leave the actuarial side precisely vulnerable to the unexpected, to the, to the heroic. You end up doing something that seems stupid and thus the other side hasn't considered it. Again, I'm, I'm not telling you which approach is right. I'm not telling you which approach will win. I'm just saying that rather we just have to be honest with ourselves and the degree to which actually we have made a philosophical choices whether to be optimistic or pessimistic, whether to believe that the sheer justice of Ukraine's position means that it cannot lose, 
or whether to be rather more pessimistic and assume that when it comes down to it, virtue never triumphs. You know, all of these are essentially personal judgments that we then tend to clothe in analytic justification. We need that degree of humility. Not to let it paralyse us, because often there are times when we have to come off the fence. We have to make a decision or make a prediction or make a recommendation. But we just need to ensure, and I think this is one of the problems with a lot of the discussion about the Ukraine war last year, we have to be sure that our analysis is as far as is humanly possible, driven by our understanding of the facts on the ground, rather than what we want to see, what we want to claim, or what we think is morally right. The universe, alas, does not care what is morally right. Now, don't worry. In future podcasts, I will return to my air of stratospheric omniscience. But at the same time, I would ask you, dear listener, also always to realise that however confident I may sound, I can be right, I can be wrong, but often I'm just guessing. Thanks very much. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>